You are listening to the Future Builders podcast by PT1, where some of the leading voices in real estate innovation share their thoughts. PT1 is creating the European venture capital platform for transformative real estate technologies and is all about investing and supporting future builders, innovative entrepreneurs from across Europe that tackle global challenges of our time, created by increasing scarcity of natural resources, affordable living space, and skilled labor. Each week, your host, King Mama, and his colleagues from the PT1 team interview these future builders, whether they come from the startup or corporate side, to talk about their mission of shaping the future of the built world. For regulatory reasons, it is necessary to point out that this podcast is marketing communication and that investors interested to invest in PT1 should make their investment decision based on the legal documentation. Hi, Jane. We are so happy to have you here. Welcome to the Future Builders podcast by PropTech One. We have, we have a very, very interesting conversation ahead of us. So let's jump right into it. To start with, Jane, I know you're a criminal lawyer turned entrepreneur and now the CEO of Purse.io. I would love to know more about this journey, this transition, and why did you choose to start Purse.io? What's the story there? Okay, sure. Thanks. So I'm Jane Lucy. I'm co-founder and CEO of Purse. We're a data company and we're providing services focused on the energy and carbon markets. My background is originally as a criminal defence lawyer, which I appreciate is rather unusual. I mean, I finished school at 16. I graduated with a law degree when I was 20 and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So law just seemed to be a good option and criminal law just seemed to be fascinating. But once I'd been working for a few years, I felt like it wasn't fulfilling in the way that I could imagine a career for the next sort of 40 years. And so I went traveling. I uh, I grew up in Australia, so I left Australia and I came over to Europe. I lived over here for a couple of years and I met some friends that worked uh, in television and that sounded really exciting compared to law. So I decided actually to go into media before I got into uh, energy and data and technology and so I went back to Australia. I went to film school. I then made a documentary for Australian television. I then missed Europe and came back via Berlin. And I ended up working in TV at the time that the internet changed the way that the industry works. So obviously we no longer have, you know, fixed overnight broadcasts. We now have sort of cross-platform media in terms of people watching things through YouTube and, uh, you know, other digital pl- platforms. And so I watched how that industry got changed with technology and I found that as a fascinating process. And so I did some of Channel 4's first cross-platform campaigns and they were really successful and they were really focused on using technology to empower consumers through aggregating their collective influence to disrupt a market. And that was sort of my key thing that I became fascinated about. And after doing really successful projects around sort of food and land and and things like that, that was specific to Channel 4, I thought, how can you apply that approach in a different sector? What sector is, you know, screaming out for new technology solutions and customer empowerment? And I landed on the energy sector. So it was the same time where I was being harassed by the credit agency of a big energy supplier as them issuing me refund checks. So that's how broken the system was. They got billing so wrong 
that they knew that they had it wrong and were issuing me a refund but still chasing me for money. It was just insane. And so that that was sort of my first reason of wanting to, to do something in this space. But very quickly, of course, because energy forms 73% of the world's carbon footprint, if you're going to pick the most singular crucial element of our transition to net zero, it's got to be energy. And so, again, thinking about how data can play such a key role in that was the other major ambition that I had in co-founding Purse. Wow, that is absolutely brilliant. The fact that so many, it's, it's not the biggest of the experiences, the smallest and the most annoying or the painful experiences that sort of nudges to solve it. I mean, I can't deal with it anymore. I have to find a solution. Wow, it's so, so cool. Your transition from different industries, different educational background, and even, you know, just being around the world, pan-European experiences and different cultures sort of led you to sort of start this company. And I think now the power of data, people truly start to see it, believe it. And and then now I think they've started to take away the value from actually utilizing data in a way that they can then have actionable insights. It's not just about having this good looking, beautiful looking dashboards anymore, but about how do we use that? How do we act on that? Very interesting. And acting on data in a way where the data is invisible, right? Because data itself is not exciting for most people. <laughs> Unfortunately, as much as we might get excited by it, it it's it's not going to stack up against Netflix or um, something nice to eat. So, you know, it, it's about creating great experiences and great products and services out of it. Now, you touched upon energy and incumbents don't know, don't understand the, the, the system being broken and fragmented. And especially today, the last few months, we've been talking about energy transition and energy transition and the energy crisis has just been on everyone's mind. In in UK, the prices are going up. The, the people are getting squeezed, and energy energy prices is one of the biggest components of that. So now, where do you think the industry is in terms of energy transition, both the big corporates and and consumers? So where do you think the market is? And actually, also want to touch upon real estate because we all live in homes yeah. and then we work in offices. So real estate becomes the biggest component of how where your energy gets utilized and where it gets wasted as well. So where do you think this market is and what do you think we can do about it? Well, I think the market personally is frightening, but from a professional point of view, the conditions couldn't be better in terms of there is so much demand for data in this space than we could have dreamt of. So the traditionally the problem about the energy market in terms of you know operating this space is that energy is invisible and it's traditionally really boring. So, you know, engagement had had traditionally been the barrier. But now energy is in the news every day. It's at the top of our worries in terms of managing bills. And, you know, as I mentioned, it's critical in our transition to net zero. So all of a sudden, actually, energy is right at the top of the list and everyone cares about it and everyone wants help in terms of managing, you know, creating both financial and carbon savings. I think there has been some risk in maybe the last couple of months that we could have sort of lose momentum a little bit on the transition to net zero in terms of people wanting to prioritise cost and security of supply over reducing emissions. So, you know, the idea of energy scarcity and having to turn on coal-fired power stations to cope with demand when there hasn't been enough sort of you know, gas reserves and 
supply through the interconnectors and all that sort of stuff. So I think there's sort of been a little bit of risk around losing a bit of pace with the net zero strategy. But I think thankfully already we're seeing some improvements in that and, and you know, one of the latest initiatives that we're really excited to be part of, which we only officially joined at the beginning of this week, is, um, you know, the National Grid has now launched a program to pay everyone, be it not just large corporates, but also households, to get paid for energy efficiency in peak times. So the purpose of that is obviously to keep the lights on, to make sure that there's, you know, there is that balance of supply and demand. But also crucially, it means that the national grid won't have to switch on those really carbon intensive fuel generation sources to help with that balancing. And it's a massive win for customers, right? Because we all want to save money on our energy. So if we can earn cash, then that's one of the very few ways to to unlock savings at the moment. And it's it's quite a lot, right? So you know, before we had launched um, uh, the basis of a voluntary carbon market where we were paying people 3p per kilowatt hour of electricity um, saved in terms of the carbon avoidance that that represented. But now it's instead of 3p, it's three pounds. So, you know, it, it is actually a meaningful difference to consumers to be part, you know, actively part of how we transition to net zero and make sure that we're pushing away that risk of uh, turning on the carbon intensive sources. That's a great segue into my next question. And actually, you touched upon a few very interesting things about what is the government doing? What are the producers doing? And what can consumers do? And how, how can we in, in incentivize such good behavior? It's, it's such a very, very important things that you touched upon. So the next question is, in this huge value chain of energy production, energy infra, then distribution and consumption, where do, where do you think Purse.io sits right now? And how does it add value to consumers like me? One of the things that we've done differently from other companies in this space is focus on building up the technology solution with that whole of market coverage. And they go in there and then, you know, over time start to see you know, how they might expand. But we've, we are connected to every single meter on the grid, every single building, every generation asset and every vehicle in Britain. So it, the potential of that data is just enormous, right? So, you know, you've got obviously specific use cases in terms of, you know, helping any home or business optimise their energy spend, be it their home or their EV or even a petrol or diesel car. But then you've also got sort of the the carbon side of things. And we're finding particular traction with financial institutions at the moment around they've got their real pain point is if they own part of the asset, you know, through a mortgage or a loan, then that is within their scope one and two reporting, which is their mandatory reporting. And they just simply can't get hold of the data. Like Mm -hmm. there's no way, it's not practical to get all of those occupants of all those buildings, for instance, to give them copies of their energy bills. Just to keep track of them. So with us, all they need to do is give us a list of all their addresses within their asset portfolio and we can return the carbon footprint for them. And that's both a, a historical footprint and a current, and we also have got the industry standard algorithm to do the prediction and then the reconciliation as well. So it's over any time period. And then the other unique thing that we do is provide both a location-based carbon footprint, but also a um, market-based one. 
So obviously the first thing that people do when they've got their footprint in terms of then thinking of how to reduce it, the quickest action for them is to make sure that those buildings, those meter points are being powered by renewable energy. So switching to a green tariff or getting a power purchase agreement, a PPA. And so what market-based reporting enables them to do is to count that action. So, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the carbon of those buildings and those meter points are radically different. So, you know, obviously, as I said, they want to be able to count those reductions, which we enable them to do. But I think we're the only provider that I'm aware of that has the data to be able to do that market-based reporting. And then there's another step then on from that, and that is that our data is not just for sort of compliance um, in terms of the reporting, but we've got the data to enable them to actually bring, you know, green loans and, and green mortgages to market to help them with the customer targeting because we know, you know, if a household already has solar or if they don't, if their roof is is suitable for solar, if they've already got an EV, if they've got a history of buying um, from green providers. So we can help them with the customer targeting and then also help them with the delivery of those products. So, you know, for any household, because we've got their energy profile, their carbon profile and their cost profile, we can give them a recommendation of if you were to take this loan to install solar panels, this is exactly how much energy you will save in terms of buying from an energy supplier. This is your savings as a result and the payback period. And then we have the data to reconcile and prove to both the customer and the bank that those outcomes were in fact delivered. Wow, that was massive. (laughs) Too many things to unpack over there. Okay, the first question that I have is when you say customers, these are these institutions, these are these are the ones that are leasing a particular flow in a big building. Or when you say customers, are these people in in retail units, single family, multifamily rentals, or they own their apartments? Or which one is it? Well, this is the beauty of our product. It doesn't matter. (laughs) It's the same product for different use cases. So we are monetizing the same data again mm. and again. It's a high margin business with low overheads because it's all also all automated. So whether or not it's an occupant of a building who wants to have this information of how they optimize financial and carbon savings or the bank that's provided the mortgage or the property developer who's also having to report, you know, their scope three emissions, it doesn't matter. It, mm. it can be any any of those participants in the chain. Wow. Okay, so I saw something very, very interesting on your LinkedIn profile, and and it, it's it's such a big vision. It says you're building voluntary carbon markets to end fuel poverty. Now there are two things which I want you to give us like a quick one hundred and one. What is carbon markets and what is fuel poverty? Sure. So I'll start with fuel poverty first mm-hmm. because then it will make sense as to how the voluntary carbon market can be a solution. Fuel poverty is simply when people don't have enough money to pay their energy bills. And so they're foregoing, putting the heating on, even cooking food. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it can be that desperate. And obviously coming into winter, I mean, there's people that die every year, right? And, And the percentage of people that are expected to do so has never been higher because of the, you know, the level of fuel poverty has never been higher. You know, it's something like 66%. It's it's obscene. You'd never expect that in a Western country. So, you know, it is a real problem. And what a voluntary carbon market does, and, you know, this will sound very technical, but, you know, you can translate this to a consumer that it's really basic. You know, we, we can talk about things like green cash. It could be as simple as that. They don't really need to know 
how that cash gets generated. The fact that it's cash is mm-hmm. obviously what's important. Yeah. But essentially, when someone either uses less energy or they adopt uh, a low carbon technology, and that can be solar panels, it can be a heat pump, it can just be even simply retrofit with insulate, better insulation and double glazing windows and whatever it is that helps reduce the energy consumption of a building, that represents carbon avoidance. And as we know, carbon avoidance has a value because all these companies that are all pledging to go net zero by 2030 or whenever, and also the, all the governments as well as companies, everyone recognises that in that transition to net zero, there will still be carbon in the world, right? We won't have got rid of everything and we won't have been able to develop affordable technologies to capture all the carbon. There will still be a residual amount. And so that's where the you know voluntary carbon markets have evolved mm-hmm. in terms of creating a financial instrument that can be traded to represent a carbon avoidance to offset an an emissions that is still happening. So people are starting to buy these credits partly because they're still on their net zero journey. So they've still got plenty of emissions that are still happening that they want to start to reduce by buying these financial instruments, which are evidence of proof of carbon avoidance. Or, you know, they get to the point where they've technically met net zero, but again, they've they've still got some emissions there that they're needing to offset. And what the voluntary carbon market does is it just means that it's accessible for anyone to participate in getting that value. Is it the same as the carbon credits? I mean, any any company can go and get carbon credits. Is it similar to that? It is, yeah. So most most of the time, those carbon credits relate to projects in Africa, um, China, South America, and that's great because there's obviously good projects that are happening in those places, but they can also happen here, right? There's no reason why you can't, you know, enable people, you know, such as fuel poor households to benefit from the same kind of things that people in those countries are benefiting from too. And I think there's also a shift in terms of some increasing pressure on companies that their credits should be in the same location as their emissions. So, you know, and if you start to think about the availability of credits in the UK, there aren't that many. So, you know, yes, you can plant trees up in Scotland, but guess what? It takes 20 years for that tree to actually do anything. Whereas you can pay a house to start to reduce less energy today. You can help them, you know, replace their gas boiler with an air source heat pump today. Mm -hmm. Immediate savings. So it's a win for the household because all of a sudden their bills have come down partly through energy efficiency, but partly from getting paid money to do it. And there's a win for the companies in terms of having credits that have got a social value in the location of their emissions. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and the other point that I wanted to touch upon is sometimes carbon credit market is seen in a negative light because you are not talking about reducing your carbon, but you're trying to offset it, offset whatever you've done with some, some other project somewhere else. Versus this is in incentivizing people to avoid emitting that carbon and, and using a much greener source of fuel, energy fuel or whatever. So that's, that's such a contrast and very, very interesting proposition. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have focused on carbon capture and we need it, definitely. But it's much easier to avoid it in the first place. Yeah, avoid. <laughs> yeah, reduce first and then we can think about capturing the rest of it. Makes sense. Absolutely. Okay. Now we've spoken about what is the status quo and how is all these pressures 
sort of squeezing people and businesses alike. And so many regulations and compliance requirements are coming up across EU and the UK for, for both financial institutions and other any sort of corporates. Now, what do you think are the, the macro trends that is driving this change? Is it consumer activism? Or is it just that people have suddenly woken up and they all feel climate change is real, they see droughts, and then water in in UK has been at, at its lowest levels? What do you think are the top few trends that sort of pushing this market, pushing people to act? I think, unfortunately, a lot of it has still been regulation, so stick-based rather than carrot. But I think we're starting to get there that companies that have started to do stuff in this space because they felt they had to, but they're now starting to see that there are actual benefits beyond compliance. And so I think that is now starting to flip, that actually they they are going after seeing value rather than because they have to. And that's really exciting because obviously there's going to be a lot more that can be achieved when it's not just a compliance-driven motive. Cool. I want to shift gears now and get into what are entrepreneurs doing and what would your advice be to any other entrepreneur that wants to sort of step into this energy energy industry? How did you do it? How did you take the leap of faith? Because there is some comfort in getting a regular paycheck. And then as you grow into levels, it's just it just gets comfortable. But you've sort of left that and then embarked on this extremely arduous journey of being an entrepreneur. So how did that happen? And what would be your advice to anyone else trying to enter this market? Well, I think in terms of the energy sector specifically, I think that you do need to understand the regulation, which is a bit painful, but but I guess that's where my legal background actually still carries a lot of value. And, you know, it's now no longer just the energy market, but also obviously carbon reporting has got a lot of regulation and being a data company, there's also, you know, data protection. So I think the real advantages in this market is understanding how to innovate within a regulated market. And I think that's part of, um, you know, what's quite key to how we approach opportunities at Purse. Um, But in terms of becoming an entrepreneur generally and and giving up the the safe, stable paycheck, um, I think my advice is to be really clear on your idea and that it really has potential scale I think the risk is that some people just get excited about the idea of being in a startup Mm -hmm. and it is something that you're going to be living and breathing day and night for quite a long time. So you're going to have to like it to want to stay in that space. And also, you know, in terms of raising investment, you've got to convince people that this is a big market to go after so that even if you only get a small chunk of it, Mm -hmm. that's still going to be worth a lot of money. Absolutely. Okay. On on that, raising funds and raising money. So I, I have a question that's slightly difficult because the first thing is putting together a great team because at, at a very, very early stage, investors look at the team. They're banking on the team to execute on this big vision. So as as an entrepreneur, the first CEO that has the idea, the, the first big task is to then bring on at least two to three people on board. Then you say, hey, it's not just me. It's 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 my team and all of us are going to do this thing. Which one's difficult? Is it is it difficult to raise funds or is it is it difficult to get your co-founders? Which one would you think is most difficult? I can't actually answer the co-founder one because, I mean, Purse is actually my second startup mm-hmm. and the first one I did, I was a solo founder. So I didn't, I didn't get co-founders in that situation. Okay. And then with Purse, I only started it because I knew that my, I had wow. my co-founders and they were mm-hmm. the right people. 
Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't have done it without them because I, I, I think sort of the first time round, I had some learnings around team and so it made me be quite careful that I was only going to do it if I knew that I had the right team in place on day one. You obviously grow the team from there, right? But our core team is such a great team <laughs> that it it made wanting to do this a no-brainer. And we, because we're, we've got such different skill sets as well, so we're really complementary and just well-suited personality-wise. I think it's obviously just quite important when you are choosing people that that you are complementary and, and you do have the right cultural fit. And if you don't, it, you can get away with that for a while, but at some stage it will, it will be a problem. Yeah. Cool. So this is the last question. As a future builder, how do you go about building a billion pound business? Well, it goes back to the idea of having a big enough opportunity to go after right? It's got to be huge to be able to build that kind of a company. And then, as I said, we've been quite ambitious in the way that we approach this in terms of having that whole of market coverage product on day one. And then from there, obviously, it's much easier to build different use cases, different customers, which also means that we're unbelievably resilient because we're not reliant on a single customer type or a single vertical or a single use case. So again, that helps you be bigger, faster, because you're able to cater for multiples. When you get, whenever you get into multiples, you know you're into a good thing. <laughs> Super cool. Okay, so if I have to sum that up, it's first find the right opportunity that you're passionate about, and then it has to be a big enough opportunity so the market is bigger and growing. And then the second bit of that is when the market is big, you also have extremely different set of customers that you can target. So then the multiplier effect sort of sets in. So that would be your advice for any, any anyone that's trying to take that leap of faith and become an entrepreneur. Okay. Definitely. Thank you so much, Jane. I can't thank you enough. This has been such an interesting conversation. We spoke about so many things. We can dive into each of these different things into a separate podcast in itself. Yeah, maybe maybe another episode in, in, in the second season. Thank you so much for being with us. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Right. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Future Builders podcast by PT1. We hope you enjoyed this week's interview on the future of the built world. And if you did so... Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave a five-star rating to allow us to continue to give you more interesting insights on real estate innovation.